Hello, everyone. This is Mark Graham, and I'm joined by my colleague at Promo Kitchen, the one and only Jay Bassell. In today's episode, we explore the way that some suppliers in our industry are throwing out the old playbooks for sales and marketing by employing digital-first tactics. Our guests today are Evan Toporek and Pete Drago with Colorado-based Original Favorites. Original Favorites is known for their high-end blank t-shirts, sweats, and polos made primarily from Sapima cotton. While they do sell within the promotional products industry, they cut their teeth by selling private label solutions to digitally native clothing brands. It's from this experience that they developed many of their digital go-to market strategies that we are going to talk about today in our podcast. Evan and Pete, it's amazing to have you guys on the Promo Kitchen podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So why don't we start with you, Pete? Can you tell us the founding story of Original Favorites? It actually started as a bit of a side hustle. There was no intention of building a business around this. If you look back at the roots of the brand, but we have a consumer company that's based in like the ski and snowboard action sports space and kind of crosses into streetwear. And we started that back in 2005. The brand became really popular primarily for like our hoodies and t-shirts. And you know, when we first started the brand, we actually bought a couple of blanks just to test out. And the first one was just like your standard kind of pullover hoodie. And for what we were looking for, it was really just kind of a bag of shit. So I felt like there had to be... <laughs> well said. Well said, Pete. <laughs> we were trying to make like a really premium product. And so we started immediately on cut and sew, which is like a highly ill-advised tactic, just given the cost and the minimums. But we were able to find a factory that was going to work with us to make a sweatshirt and a t-shirt that we really liked. And so the brand was built on this kind of knitwear platform, but we would make it custom. And as the brand grew, people would ask us like where we were getting our t-shirts and sweatshirts from. And they assumed it was just a blank that someone was producing because most people don't do cut and sew at that size. And I was always like, no, we made it for their own patterns and we developed it. And we kind of sort of improved it over time. And at some point, the noise got loud enough from other people asking us if, if we could ever bring some extras in for them that I said, well, let's just do it on the side. We'll just tack on our existing bulk order for our own brand and bring them in without a label and sell them to some of the friends in the industry that we had. And the response was like really positive and people loved it. And then we had a couple other friends that had high-end clients that were like, hey, this would be perfect for X, you know, YZ client. Could you bring some more in? And then Finally, I said, well, let's just launch a little website and we'll kind of position this as just a really high-end luxury blank option. But I wasn't interested at all in getting into the, the blanks business. It took a long time for me to get comfortable with it because the traditional method was you know, sort of this cool fashion cuts and soft fabric at a really attractive price point. And I was like, I don't want to go and fight it out with you know, the Bellas and the... Right the next levels and independence, I was like, if we're going to do it, it's going to be a non-compromising approach. And we're going to have the most expensive blank in the biz intentionally. And we're not going to do the price point thing. We're going to say, no, it's actually really expensive yeah. and try to focus on the one out of a hundred clients that want that kind of product. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And Evan, your background is also very relevant to this conversation. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to the original favorite story? Yeah. So for 22 years, I co-owned alternative apparel. And since 2010, I ran it as CEO. And 
went through many highs and lows with the business. Thankfully, more highs than lows, but through it all, I guess I learned enough to where people were contacting me for advice. Of course, it culminated in 2017 with selling the brand to Haynes, which Haynes Brands has done a fantastic job just keeping it alive and focused. I would take any call that anybody, if they cared to think that I knew it all, heck, I would give them my time. If they came out to meet with me in my office, I'd give them my time, coffee, whatever. But the trick was I wasn't just giving advice. I was learning a lot along the way. Yeah. So I met with many entrepreneurs, a lot of startups, and it always intrigued me that you know they didn't have the luxury of having all of this budget for systems and people. They didn't throw people at problems. They had to be scrappy and solve things on their own. So I would take back what I learned from these guys and try to implement it at work, try to be nimble, try to act like we're entrepreneurs and running small businesses. And, you know, Pete was just one of the people I was connected with. One of the co-founders of Mack Weldon, if you know the underwear brand, a guy named Michael Isaacman, yeah. connected us together. And I was intrigued with what they do. So, you know, I would describe my role in all of this as just a formal mentor. Pete and his partner, Dave, they run the show. And I've just been fascinated with how they are going about it in a way that was really different than most of us did over the last couple of decades. Yeah. And I mean, knowing the alternative brand as I did in my time as a promotional products distributor, I can imagine the experience. And as you say, some of the highs and lows that you've been through over the years is super relevant to another premium provider like Original Favorites. I mean, Alternative certainly wasn't competing with Gildan or Fruit or Hanes. Right. So the shirts were and still are quite expensive relative mm -hmm. to the bottom of the market. Still good value, but certainly a higher price point. So I think your experience is probably awesome. The other thing you know, I'll give us credit for at Alternative is, first of all, not trying to attack a market opportunity because becoming eco-friendly was, was hot. People wanted it. You know, 15 years ago, we broke down the supply chain and really saw the nastiness that could ensue and the damage it would have. Yeah. And so the brand to this day has been just really focused on being different in that way. Yeah. I'm proud that they've eliminated virgin polyester. And what I've seen with original favorites is what Pete just said, just not compromising on quality not getting into the rat race of price point and they're doing a fantastic job of it. Yeah. Pete, question for you, if you have maybe some rough numbers that you can share with us so we can get some context as to where Original Favorites sits in the industry. So I'm curious if you could share the percentage split in your sales between what I understand to be your four main markets. Number one, the private label channel. Number two, the B2B promotional products distributor market, number three, the apparel decorator market, and finally, number four, consumer retail. Just a rough percentage of your sales breakdown between those four? If you're talking on the private label channel, and it includes a couple of things in there because there's some crossover with decorators for us, but basically the entire model we built was designed to have the conversation between us and the brand or company that was going to be using the product and to try and strip down some of the layers between it because there's some inefficiencies there. And then also, I'm kind of paranoid about brand. And so it was really important to make sure that we controlled that conversation and that message yeah. to make sure that we were communicating correctly. So most of our sales, 85% of them are just blanks. 
And we sell that to a combination primarily just as a blank. But then there are a few clients that will piggyback on our bulk production runs. And we will have it decorated at the factory and brought back in. It's not a business that we target. It's not a part of the company that we like advertise, but there are some large household names in either the luxury space or in the consumer space that we'll take on like three or four per year maximum clients because we don't have the bandwidth for it. So I'd much prefer to sell the blanks and about 85% of the business is that sort of blank or existing product that we just have stocked to brands or to brands that maybe want us to just help put the tags in at our factory and bring them in. About 5% goes to the promotional product space. And that is not that we don't want to do more there. It's not that we are shying away from it. We just don't do any outbound sales calls. Right. So that would be a great way for us to get the product in front of them. But right now, the only ones that have come to us have been when a client brings our blank to that company and says, I want you to use this t-shirt or this sweatshirt. Right. And that happens. That's how most of our inbound sales come. So we started by making the conversation between us and the brand so that they then are like, wait, I don't like what you're showing me. Can you go to these guys? So most of the promotional products companies come to us after a client says, hey, this is what I want. And so it's a small percentage. The decorators are part of that 85% because the ones that are ordering from us are just ordering on behalf of a client that came to them and said they want it. Right. We do get contacted by apparel decorators. And we have an approved decorator part of our website, which shows based on your area, these are folks that we have seen that do good work because I'm not interested in the decoration side at, really at all. I like to connect the brand with the decorator yep. and say, here's who you should be working with. They're pros of this area. And then it's about 3% is like a retail customer. Right. Like just Joe Average that shows up and buys right off your website. Yeah. Right. I have one Last little question, and then I want to turn things over to Jay. So you mentioned the promotional product space, and right now it's roughly about 5% of your sales. How do you navigate channel conflicts where you may have an end client, let's say a Fortune 500 company, maybe the CEO happened to pick up one of your shirts and now goes to you and asks for this? Are you ever conflicted in terms of wanting to take on that business direct versus, say, referring it over to a promotional products distributor? So most of the time, those companies want really fast turnaround. They don't plan things out like a fashion label would. Yep. And so I tell them right away, I'm like, we're six months to nine months if you want to develop custom through us. And it's going to require 50% deposit, 50% before we ship it. And that's non-flexible. We don't budge off that. Yep. I I have no intention of it because I don't want to develop an AR department that has to go track down people for payment. So for us, we have a tough time. The inventory demand and supply situation has been to the point where it's gone if I'm going to sell it the next day or two days later to somebody else. So I don't need to extend those terms. Yeah. But the bigger part is when it comes to those companies that come to us for like a custom product, I find it to be way better for us to partner with somebody that's going to get it decorated well and do a really good job executing it and just take our inventory that we have yep. and ship it to that person. And so we do tell people, they'll bring it up and they'll say, well, what happens if our brand contacts you? If they understand our motivation and how we operate the business, we want nothing more than to have it go to somebody where I can keep the sales channel very clean and very simple. Yeah. We make a really high quality product. And then that way, if something's wrong with the print, and this is a big one for me, is that if something's wrong with the print or the tagging, the customer doesn't look at it and go, oh, the sweatshirt's phenomenal. 
but I don't like the decoration. They just go, oh, this was a crappy product. It didn't get what we wanted. And I'd rather be able to segment who's in charge of which part because I know our product is airtight and I know the QC is unbelievable on it. So I'm pretty confident in sending it anywhere and having it decorated from there. Yeah, awesome. That makes a ton of sense. Evan, I'm just thinking yeah. about what you said and how does that differ? You got excited when you heard no net terms. I mean, is that a total shift for our industry or what? Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, allow me to jump on a soapbox for 48 seconds. Okay, we're timing you. Go, click. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the big the big companies, they're shipped. And the tools are there for these startups to really grow quickly. But the big companies, they have a tougher time adopting them and adapting to the change. So these guys, they really do have this funnel of inbound traffic. The brand is led through these digital means. They do pick up the phone when they get in uh, customer registration. And one of the two owners will call everybody that registers with them. Beyond that, all the touch points are digital. And I have worked with incredible salespeople in my time. But it is time for salespeople to become something different. Mm. And they themselves need to become curators or more creative or sommeliers especially in the promotional products industry, it's overwhelmed with things that you could buy. The brand itself has become the new way to communicate with the end buyer. And the rep really just needs to clean their head of thoughts and help them choose. And nothing would drive us more crazy than saying we're going to hire someone because they have a great relationship with a buyer. And that buyer changes or that rep may leave. But the brand and the stickiness between the brand and those that connect with it, especially through digital means, will survive all of that turmoil. And in fact, these guys are doing just fine, even with the craziness we're living through right now. Wow. I love what you just said. And that actually transitions to my next question, too, was to ask you both. But maybe I can start with you, Pete. You could give us a little insight on growth for this year prior to March, and then tell us what's happened since March with our worldwide coronavirus COVID pandemic. So things were great. Things were okay. And then the bottom dropped out. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So tell us how's business been? Because we're in this early stage, we're three years old. We have three years in the books, let's say. So we kind of set these growth trajectories based on the capital that we had we didn't really go out. We didn't really raise any money. We kind of put what we had into it. We've got a capital partner who gave us some to start, and we just kept reinvesting in additional inventory. And because we sold the inventory quickly and all the way through each time, we had these kind of periods where we didn't have product and we continued to ramp up our inventory position and it gets better every year. But we only forecast to kind of double each year because anything more than that, even if we got a bunch of money, and we're going and raising capital, we wouldn't have the infrastructure. We wouldn't have the, the team built to like be able to handle that. That's one of the bigger challenges we had with our consumer brand we learned from. And so we kind of set this sort of doubling each year. If we can do that and have a controlled level of growth that we could handle from an infrastructure standpoint, then we would be in a good spot. And so we forecasted that for 2020 and we were above the forecast going into March. And then COVID sort of, I'd say, let's just call it March 16th when kind of things started locking down. 
<laughs> click, click, click. Um, the timer went off. Ding. Right. Well, that yeah. week was still kind of bananas for us. So I was like, oh, wow, like maybe we are going to be good. And then the next week, things started to slow down. And so I said, all right, well, this is maybe the new normal for a bit. We got to batten the hatches down. Let's keep it locked down. But it also coincided with when our inventory ran out, as we kind of had forecasted before our next delivery, which was going to be April 8th. And so March 23rd, that week, things kind of really slowed down. And I was a little bit concerned, but we had some cash position and we were kind of ready for some slowdowns. And then the next week, about a week before our inventory arrived, the sales started picking back up again. And we have on our website, like a restock page, which has a really good transparency into if the product left the dock, if it's on the boat, when it's going to be at the port, the estimated customs clearance date, when it's going to be on the rail, and then when it gets to our warehouse. And our customers are very good at tracking that. And so usually the week the product's arriving is when the orders start to come back in. Right. So after that one week where we were out of product, all of a sudden it just like turned back on like a faucet. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's because of PPP money or economic injury disaster loan money, but we started just seeing orders come in and then it just been gangbusters since then. And we're ahead of last year's forecast for 2020 which was a pretty aggressive forecast. We're ahead of it now. Now, I don't know what it would have been if we didn't have the COVID thing, because maybe it would have been way beyond that. But for right now, we're very comfortable with where we are and happy, but we're also curious to see if this summer, what happens? Because if the PPP money or EIDL money's gone, you know, what happens to the companies at that point? But we don't have any sort of single large client. We have a ton of smaller brands that are digital and e-commerce based and they seem to keep ordering so as of right now we're cranking along i think that last point i'm glad you brought that up yeah i was just going to ask maybe you could add some spice on that yeah i mean you know i think there's a lesson learned here he did break down the percentage of sales they have through different channels and of course shopping at home at a good price point has survived this so I'm not sure if they were flip-flopped and and such a high percentage sold into end use of corporate America, we would be having that same conversation. But the lesson I believe we've all learned through this is to try not to be too concentrated with any customers, of course, that's old school business, but also try not to be so concentrated within any vertical. I have plenty of friends and have fantastic promotional products companies that just may have gotten a little too tilted into an industry that has been very damaged by this and they're struggling and it's difficult to watch that while you're building your business but if you can have some discipline and analyze what the end use is and try to spread those eggs as wide as you can you'll have a better chance of getting through it yeah well said well it makes a lot of sense i like that concept you've spread this through so many digital buyers you're not stuck with all things events or, you know, you're not in one vertical. So that makes a ton of sense. Maybe that's what's helped keep those numbers up as opposed to some of the other folks in our promo space and apparel space. They've really gone through a few struggles this last six weeks. It's been super challenging. Yeah. And I, from a macro level too, loungewear is doing better. I mean, when's the last time you buttoned the shirt? So T-shirts and sweatshirts and sweatpants are going to definitely have a better chance when we're all working from home. That's the new business wear, isn't it? Yeah. And and by the way, let's hope that just stays the same. I mean, it's all we've ever worn to work. 
<laughs> you couldn't have planned for this brand explosion any better. What crystal ball are you guys using? Wow. <laughs> Pete, how did you know that was coming, Pete? Tell yeah, Pete, tell us. We study global diseases at a really micro level. So we... <laughs> <laughs> I won't even go there. That's... We fell backwards into that part, that's for sure. <laughs> Take credit for it. Your timing was perfect. So, <laughs> you know, I do want to dig just a little deeper. I know time is short, but tell us if you were, besides the branding side of, you know, original favorites, if you were trying to grow, let's say for the rest of the year, this is currently in May, let's just say for the remainder of 2020, how would you specifically go to market trying to attract either more promotional product companies or more apparel decorators? Because that's the world that Mark and I really live in. And that's where our promo kitchen listeners are, you know, that's where they live. So right. if you were marketing to those folks, rather than the Fortune 500 company dragging the promo buyer in saying, hey, I found this while I was skiing in Aspen. I really love it. I want to buy thousands of them. How would you market to those folks specifically? Because as far as I know, I've never seen the brand at a trade show. I don't have salespeople calling me talking about original favorites. So what would you do or what are you doing? Maybe you could kind of dig into that for a second. What if I told you I didn't want to do that? If I had extra funds, let's say, and we had more inventory, what if I just said, I'd rather go deeper in the method we're using because I think it's a better way? And I say that because what we're trying to do is to say, if I have a product that costs 25 bucks for a hoodie, I can go beat down as many doors as I want. But the reality is about one out of a hundred customers that come into that decorator are going to look for a product that's expensive. Most of them are like, hey, I need what's cheap and soft, right? That's a normal conversation. And that's fine because that's the way most brands sit in the marketplace. Correct. But our customer is a customer that sells a hooded sweatshirt for at minimum 85 bucks, but probably over a hundred and a t-shirt over $40. And some of them sell them for over a hundred. It just depends upon where they sit. But for that brand, if I go to a decorator or I go to a trade show and I show them this product, they might remember when that one customer comes along that there's a luxury option out there. But even if they do, are they going to understand how to communicate it like the way that we do with regards to the raw materials that we use, which are insanely expensive and really nice, or the classic construction or anything related to the sustainability or our supply chain? So I'm like, well, then isn't it more efficient for me to then try to find that customer digitally and get in front of them? Because if they're searching for something that we provide. There's not many companies in the world that do what we do. It's not that they can't. It's just that this is what we've dedicated our time to. Right. They chose not to. You have. Right. And so for us, if someone searches for a Supima cotton blank t-shirt, you better believe we're going to end up in front of them. And how do they search for that stuff? They search for it online. So rather than go to and spend time trying to pitch it to somebody, I would rather have someone come to us and call our phone or email or inbound, which is how all of our leads come. Because that person's already interested in what we're doing. If they've been to our website, the photography is really, really high quality. The product clearly communicates well, and they understand that they're going to be spending more than they were if they're buying a t-shirt from a company like a Bella or a Next Level or whoever that may be, right. again, who makes a nice product at a very nice price. But they go to our website, they know they're going to spend more. And so we're not having a conversation of us versus this brand. We're having a conversation of, does this make sense for your brand? Because if it doesn't, we're the first to tell them, go buy a less expensive t-shirt. This isn't for you. Yeah. And if they can stay in business better that way, that's great for them. And maybe down the road, they want to do a premium line and we're the option for them. I have no problem telling people that because I don't like to sell something 
because I think then I'm spending time trying to convince them to spend more than they need to spend. And I don't like doing that because there's right. plenty of people out there that want what we already have. That's fabulous. Well said. For us, it's really about trying to find the one out of a hundred digitally and just get in front of them so that they can see what we're doing because it's communicated well. Right. And to dive specifically into a digital tactic on this front, Pete, are you generally investing in SEO or on the AdWords spend or both? We're doing AdWords and the Instagram, Facebook stuff. So to us, those are the two most effective channels we've seen for trying to hone into who our customer is. And we've gotten really, really good response on it. I think those channels are being used more and more, but they're really powerful. If you've got the right people helping you, making sure that the keywords and the similar interests are really honed in. Well, I'll tell you, doing some reporting here from Toronto, Canada, when you type in Sapima t-shirt blank, Original Favorites actually does show up, number one, in the organic results, which is awesome. It's obviously where you want to be. And then it looks like there are three non-original favorites that are showing up in the AdWords. But you know what? A guy like me ignores those ads and I go right to the first SEO <laughs> result. Well, so good for you. <laughs> and a guy like me goes to your Instagram page and is like, whoa, yeah, okay, what are we doing here? This is fantastic. But a company like Google can afford to buy Supima Tees because they're paying for those top three on that page. Yeah, exactly. And one of them is from <laughs> Alibaba. So I think it's irrelevant. <laughs> well, and, and if you look at the, the companies that typically try to buy those search words, I mean, there's even companies out there that have Pima in the name of their brand and they don't even use Pima. So like there's a ton of misdirection and misleading stuff to the consumer. But thankfully, the consumers are just so much smarter today. Who would have known? Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Evan, I've got a question for you. So as we talked about at the top of the episode, you were CEO at Alternative for many years. And Mm -hmm. I know that Alternative has salespeople, attends trade shows and works with wholesale distributors like the Alpha Broders of the industry. I'm curious if there was something about that traditional approach that led you to throw out this old school playbook when you got involved with Pete and the folks at Original Favorites. Yeah, I mean, truth be told, I haven't adjusted anything they're doing. I'm really just a mentor, but I was drawn to what they were doing because like I mentioned earlier, I feel like everything should be brand led. You know, I sense that consumer brands were doing a fantastic job connecting with their customers without anyone in between. And let's take Tesla, for example, you know, that old adage of the used car salesperson slapping the hood. I mean, Tesla is selling a hundred, hundred twenty thousand $120,000 cars with a click of a button. Why can't we adopt that type of connection using digital means into any industry? And I do think that the promotional products industry has been a bit behind to spot some of those consumer experience trends and bring them into the fold. So I didn't adjust what they were doing. I just think it's great what they're doing. And let me also say, salespeople that I've worked with in the past are fantastic. I do think their role needs to change. I think there is too much. And I like the term stuff because we're all overwhelming customers with what they can buy. Yet the consumer wants to buy less and they want to buy things they can do more in. So more occasions of use. I mean, the last six weeks, if you're like me, I've purged half of the things we've had in this house. It's disgusted me and what we've accumulated. (laughs) So I think that we all, as suppliers, as brands, We need to just hone in on what we do best 
do we want to pay for market research and chase what someone else is doing well and maybe undercut them by a nickel? I don't think the world needs more of that. So long story short, I think the brand, and the brand means more than just marketing. It's every touch point. It's the product. It's the visual voice. It's everything. Amen. Leads. Yeah. And the salesperson needs to be, a lack of a better term, a brand ambassador. They really just right. need to, to help their customer right. hone in on exactly what they want. So let me ask you a question. I know it's hypothetical, but I'm curious as to see what your answer is for this. So let's say you are still CEO at Alternative. Yep. It's 2020. Do you make a case for, and this is pre-purchase from Haynes because mm-hmm. clearly they were in charge once they were purchased. So pre-purchase, let's assume they had bought you. Would you be making a case today to cut your trade show booth, your traditional salespeople at Alternative? Or is there a view that once, if you're a brand that has invested in those from the beginning, that it's very difficult to get rid of it. Whereas Original Favorites has got a bit of an advantage because they never were investing in those channels to begin with. So there's nothing really to lose. What would you do? Would you switch midstream? I know it's a tough question, but I'm curious to get your answer. Layers of answers. Haynes bought us. Haynes did not force us into a specific playbook. They really did listen to us and want us to lead. You know, Haynes is a hundred plus year old company. Yeah. The Haynes alternative was, you know, basically more of a startup. Yeah, breath and fresh air kind of thing. I do want to make that clear. But I do think to your last point, the last to enter could be the first to win. Yeah. I think that if you're stuck with legacy massive systems and legacy ways of working, you'll actually limit your ability to compete against some of these startups. So yeah. I was already before I was leave by the way when you say leave, I mean, it was about an eight month process. You know, it was no ill will. It was, it was excellent. I still keep in touch with many of them there. We had worked tremendously on drop shipping, even for retailers, because I think that's the way of the future. So there was digital connection being made there. We were one of the first adopters in a tool called New Order. If you're familiar with it, it's more for the retailer group, but it was digitizing more of a trade show and a a rep and buyer experience from the beginning. Yep. We were starting to turn down trade shows. I respect a lot of suppliers that have taken that approach. I think Poly Concept comes to mind. Yep. I believe they only do one big show a year. Is that true? Yeah, I know they dropped out of ASI, but yeah. And they tailor different events to have relationships with customers. So look, face-to-face has taken on a whole new meaning with the virus. Yeah, but I think there was already a big movement to try to create a new way of working with customers. Yeah, Pete, I've got one last for you, and then I'll flip it back to Jay. I know that you have a lot of expertise with digital platforms like Shopify and Mailchimp, and I'm curious if you can talk about some of the tactics that you've employed with those particular platforms in email and e-commerce to drive your business. Yeah, sure. I mean, they've both been huge for us doesn't mean I don't have my gripes with those companies. So this isn't some sort of free ad for either of them. <laughs> but, but I, As but is I, the case with any technology, yes. <laughs> but I will say though, for any company out there, I think the email list is the most powerful tool that we have. And I say that because we own it. Like that's our client with their information that we can speak directly to. You know, social media accounts are great, but 
you're sort of building your house on rented land on those situations because they can change algorithms on how your posts are seen or they can adjust. Yeah. And then they want you to start paying so that your already existing followers can see things. Yep. So for MailChimp to me, it was amazing because now this is a list of people that are buying from us. This isn't like a list of distributors that are then selling it to a sales independent person that's going to then sell it to the decorator that's going to sell it to the consumer. Like this is us talking to our user. And they then can take that language to their client. If they want to sell a high-end product, they can have all these tools that we provide them with. And I think being able to go through MailChimp for that is so powerful, especially if you set up like the right kind of drip campaigns. And what I mean by that is if someone comes into our online system, Evan mentioned, we make a phone call to every client that comes inbound just to introduce ourselves. And if they apply for a wholesale account, we let them know that we're here to help. And we've got this little phrase that we say, which is to use us as a resource, because we believe we've got a lot of experience in the industry. We're happy to chat about it anytime. So that's part of it. And if they get their account activated, they see a certain sort of chain of emails that come through that are really helpful in terms of them understanding our product, how to order, and then some of the things that they can use to help sell that product to the client or to you know, their customer if it's a brand. And then if they don't sort of fall into our jet stream. There's another sort of channel that we can help them with to help move them along. And whether it's with us or somebody else, it at least helps them educate themselves because our belief is the more education that each of these people have, whether it be the end user or the brand, the better they're going to be situated to buy the product that makes the most sense for what they are as a company. And so I love MailChimp. I think it's great. And for a while, them and Shopify were pretty well integrated. There was a little public spat over some information sharing that took place then they're a little less integrated than they once were, but you can still have an app that'll connect the two. And then Shopify, again, great company. I still have some gripes with things that they do, but I think overall, I was so disenchanted with the wholesale blank website program. Like These sites are so dated looking and clunky, and they don't have that feel that you get when you go to a really good consumer brand's website. And so we built the whole business on this digital sort of concept. And if we were going to do that, we needed our imagery to be exceptionally high quality. We needed to communicate the product effectively, size charts, all of this information to get the buyer to be comfortable. And I think Shopify has an amazing visual platform in terms of allowing companies to look really beautiful and presentable and to inspire confidence in the person buying. And so I love the look and feel of it. It's not necessarily great for B2B, but I think that they're continuing to roll out new technology and new interface elements that will help to make it better. And as for right now, it's been working very well for what we need it to do. And I think it's the whole key to our business because almost all sales come through that site. Really interesting. I love what you said there. I'm going to pivot just a little bit. I want to talk and both of you, if you could, Pete, you said earlier something about uncompromising quality that you're not willing to compromise. I loved that. And Evan, you said something earlier about being one of the OG pioneers of a supply chain breakdown. And I don't mean breakdown from a negative standpoint. I mean, kind of dissecting it down and figuring it out. So this question has to do with that in terms of manufacturing. I've seen this resurgence of made local, I'll say, because it could be made in Canada, could be made in the US. And there's been that passion for apparel specifically returning and having that manufacturing base here in the US, made in the USA or made in Canada. And we're starting to see greater numbers on that. But the question really is, 
are you seeing it? Is this the time to pivot? Is this an opportunity to bring back some of that production domestically? Yeah, I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. I continue to hope, but I'm not sure we have the skilled labor. I'm not sure we have the machinery. I'm not even sure those are the greatest jobs we could give our people. So I would tell you that moving it closer to where you do most of your business. So if you sell mostly in the U.S., it is critical, especially if you're going to supply in the promotional products world, to get your supply chain moving as quickly as you can. So I would say moving it to this hemisphere is important. You never know where that big order is going to come from. It's almost impossible to forecast your inventory needs, and it's not a great use of capital to just be as deep as you possibly can. So speed to me is priority one. Right. Domestically made, I'll believe it when I see it. Sorry to have that attitude, but no, I think that's fair. I don't. I don't think you need to apologize for that attitude. It's one thing for a loud minority to say we want, we want, we want, but the reality is the buyer. And if the buyers, you know, don't really care, then you're right. But I'm curious, also, and Pete, what is your take on this? And maybe this whole. COVID coronavirus pandemic has created some uncertainty and that might have a factor here, but I'm just real interested on your guys' take on this domestic production. I think everything Evan said, there's something that I'm on the same page with and it's not to sound jaded or like, you know, disenchanted about the whole thing, but the reality is, and this is probably not going to be a popular take, but I still haven't seen a t-shirt produced in the U.S. that's as good as the t-shirt we make right now in Tierport, India. And on top of that further, and if there are one, by the way, I'd love to see it. We're totally open to receiving calls from any factory in the U.S. that thinks they can do what we're doing. But the reality is of it is if you've been in those factories, I've been in them all over the world. And I have seen factories in L.A. that working conditions are just got awful, poorly ventilated, very low paying wage jobs with unskilled labor. And I've been to factories overseas that are sparkling clean with incredible conditions for the employees, as well as healthcare on site and every certification under the sun. And so I think for us, it's not that we don't want to, I would like to do it, but I think what's more important is having full transparency into your supply chain and then also to have options and to have a diversity of where your products are coming from to make sure that you are hedged against something like this. But this is a global pandemic and it's affecting everybody. Correct. I do think though, as far as manufacturing goes, it's just a little less sexy than the reality. The idea of it is sexy, I think. Yeah. The reality of it isn't always when you go and see it. And then the other part is yeah. sometimes the cost and that stuff, it's up to the consumer to be willing to pay for it. And it can be very expensive. And in a lot of cases, just seem less quality. I hate saying that, but that's the reality of today's world. Well said. Well, we would esteem you as the subject matter expert. You would probably know greater insights on that than we would for sure. So let's follow up to that. Again, if either of you could speak to this, please feel free to share some insights. But what I really want to do is kind of jump into the decorator's position. So if I am an apparel decorator at some point, I'm going to believe that this luxury brand that seems to thrive at the crossroads of streetwear and vintage and classic and, you know, a 1950, 55 Sportster Porsche meets 
the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, right? I mean, I, I was on your Instagram page, just like I was like word bombing. I was like, "How am I going to describe this? This is this is crazy, cool, eclectic." You know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a at a vintage record store in Nashville, and you know, skiing in Aspen. So that's where you guys seem to live. Wherever luxury is, you're going to be there, I suppose. But I come from the background, and eventually, I want to know about how are we going to decorate this thing. I'm sure you're selling a lot of blanks, but I believe that better branding happens when we have the world's perfect canvas, let's say an original favorites, anything, and then I'm able to put the right messaging, the right branding on that, marry that, merge those two together. So my question is, that was a long buildup. <laughs> what do you see in terms of superior prints? Can you share some examples? What's working well? Do you have partners that you brag about that say, oh, I was on your website. I saw the screen printers that you, I know many of them. So that's fabulous. But are there some limitations? What should I know as a decorator? And that's kind of a dysfunctional question, but go for it. I love it. So it depends upon what kind of answer you want. I can give you the nerd level understanding from the cotton standpoint, which basically the raw material is what makes all of it as good as it is. That's the end all be all. So what you said there was code for no short staples, long staple only, right? Am I right? That's right. Well, not long staple. Yeah, not just long staple, extra long staple. Very, very- Extra long. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you better explain that to Mark. We just lost Mark. I can tell you that right now. All right, Jay, Mark, you strap in. Go ahead, Pete. Go, go off on this. <laughs> so there's a ton of different type of cotton out there. And I think this is where our customers, they love this nerd level cotton thing. So- if you go and look at the source of the raw material, 99% of the cotton grown globally is short staple cotton. And in the US, it's primarily a Kayla cotton, which is the standard t-shirt that most people are probably wearing today. There are a few really, really high-end heirloom, and not spelt the way some people spell it, but the real heirloom, like an heirloom tomato types of cotton that are grown out there. And there's like Sea Island and Giza 45 which are made in microscopic quantities, like less than 500 bales a year and almost impossible to track down. But the largest, most available type is Pima, which is an extra long staple cotton. And what that means is that the fibers of the cotton are about 50% longer than a standard short staple cotton. And this type of cotton is tough to grow. It has low yields, but the quality of the cotton is off the charts. And when you mill it, you get this incredibly smooth surface. And so with a t-shirt, if you look really closely at your t-shirt, you just kind of hold it up against the light. You can sort of see these little fuzzies that are on there. It's like split ends you know, on your hair. Yeah. And that's because the little staples, as you mill it, they aren't as long. So they sort of have these little fuzzy splits at the end of them. And if you look at extra long staple t-shirt, that has almost a satin look and feel because there's not a lot of those little hairs. It's extremely smooth but it's also stronger. It holds color better and it provides a very smooth surface for printing. So for us, and I take no credit here, this is just like an unbelievably high quality plant that we happen to use for our t-shirts and it's expensive as hell. And there's only, you know, 1% of production globally is of this extra long staple. And in the U S they take the Pima cotton and they grow it and they have an organization called Sapima that basically certifies it and makes sure that it meets all of these crazy strict regulations in order to be classified. That's Supima, S-U-P-I-M-A, Supima? Yeah. Okay. It's a portmanteau of Pima and Superior. So Superior Pima is Supima. And that organization is incredible. 
you can go to Peru and you can get a Pima t-shirt and they may blend it with some short staple cotton, but you would have no idea. It's just one of the things that's up to the person that's putting the label on it to tell you the truth. But with Sapima, they have this independent company called Oratane that certifies it by basically zapping the t-shirt and give you new molecular breakdown of the actual plant that's being used. Now that, that is nerdy, man. That you've taken this nerddom to a new level, bro. It is very nerdy. I love it. It's getting near the end of the episode. Near the end of the episode, here's where all this comes back together. We're asking, is this the death of the salesperson? No, but the salesperson needs to be able to repeat their story the way Pete just repeated him. Amen, man. I love it. I, could you hear his passion when he's digging in deep talking about <laughs> certification and molecular DNA breakdown of cotton? I mean, come on. <laughs> but but the reality is today, it's only as good as the label on there, right? Like if you don't have this type of certification independently, like who's to say what's what? And this is why there's so many class action lawsuits right now against quote Egyptian cotton or people claiming certain things. And this Oratane is just awesome. So they're there to basically give us the assurance that what you're getting is what you're getting. And the printing on that t-shirt, to go back to your original question, the registration, the printing is so clean because you have a smooth surface and the way it holds the ink that we do get calls from printers all the time that aren't familiar with us that a client ordered our t-shirt and they printed and they'll say like, what is this? Like, this can't be cotton. And I'm like, no, it's a hundred percent Sapima. Yeah. That's, That's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that I think is spectacular to get into that degree of granularity with this because certainly our audience is comprised of a lot of apparel geeks that love to learn about this stuff. I've got one closing question for each of you, and maybe we'll start with you, Pete, and then go to Evan. Outside of original favorites, what is a t shirt clothing brand that you really admire and would happily wear their product? And it can't be original favorites. <laughs> it wouldn't be. I got other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it always, I think they tend to be Japanese brands just because I think their adherence to traditional manufacturing methods and the focus on raw material tends to come from a lot of brands from Japan that I like, but it's not a t-shirt brand per se, but they make an amazing t-shirt is Visvim, which is a brand started by a guy actually who lives in the US, but he's Japanese and the brand is rooted in Japan and they just put an unbelievable amount of effort and time into the way they make their clothing, almost going back to traditional manufacturing methods from like hundreds of years ago to intentionally make it harder to make, but to give that, they call it kind of futuristic vintage. And it's just an amazing high quality product. And if you don't have a lot of room in your closet, which I think a lot of people have limited space, I'd rather have the things in there that I have be amazing and be timeless and not be built on trends, but built on a story about the manufacturing and the sourcing of the material, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah. How about you, Evan? I mean, I I think I'll give a more commercial answer, but a lot of my desires when I look at brands comes from sustainability. And when I look at Patagonia, the way that they pioneered it, the way that they've been commercially successful without really compromising in that area, the way they guarantee their quality. I mean, if you have a zipper break, you know, you can take it to their store. They may even give you a new jacket. They stand behind it so much. And then at the brand, like I said, in every move they make, you know, they actually got a trade show when it comes down to it moved out of Utah to Colorado because they didn't believe in the way Utah was treating their national park. So Maybe it's because they're private. They don't have some of the pressures public companies have. 
But when you blend commercial with being just adamant about your ideals, I think that's a company I like to wear and get behind. Yeah, very cool. Both great answers. And this has been such a fabulous conversation. I love how we've gone from talking about digital to getting into the micro details of Sapima Cotton and its ability to hold a print really well, which I know Jay gets very excited about. <laughs> but I can tell you that <laughs> this has been a real delight. And on behalf of the entire Promo Kitchen community, we really appreciate your time and expertise, Evan and Pete. Thank you so much for having us. Well, we thank you guys as well. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.